We're thankful as always that that you teach us consistently from your word on matters of faith and matters of obedience. And you never waver. And you are there to teach us these truths even when they're not what we want to hear. You're there to reinforce them in our life as we see and see that truth play out in our everyday experience. You're the rock. You're the lamp to our feet. And we confess, Father, that so often our minds and our hearts seek truth from other sources. We go elsewhere to find what we want to hear. But you are so good to bring us back to this place and to this text every Sunday. Teach us about Abraham. Teach us about Sarah. Teach us about their faith and their obedience. But use it, Father, to teach us about ourselves so that we may follow you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 18 this morning. Abraham and Sarah are still about a year away from receiving their first child together. This is the promise that we've been hearing about now for so long, almost on the verge of coming to fruition. Their son Isaac about to be born here shortly. And as he is born, he will become the first of an uncountable number of descendants. And from him, an entire nation will eventually be formed. Out of that nation, God is going to bring his word. He's going to bring his tabernacle. He's going to bring his law. He's going to bring his son himself, the Messiah. There is a lot writing on Abraham and his son and the family that's going to come from this son. So it's obviously going to be very important for God that this man and the nation that develops from this man develop in the right way. It's critically important, really. What this nation knows about God, what it's taught, how it's trained, how it's led, what it understands about the the very God who called it, formed it, made it what it will be. All of this stuff is crucial. It's critical. And today in chapter 18, God is going to deal with two aspects of the training process, of the forming process that has to be in place in order for Isaac and Jacob and all the tribes to lead in the way God expects. One of those loose ends is Sarah. Abraham's wife. Up to this point in the text, we've watched Abraham a lot. We've watched Abraham come to a point of faith and belief. We've seen him declared righteous. We've seen him follow God and we've seen him make mistakes, but still recover. What about Sarah? Does Sarah have faith? Did she ever come to believe? Is Sarah following God? Does Sarah believe in the promises? What about Sarah? This is to be a family that raises up a a son who turns into a nation who is to follow God faithfully. Well, wouldn't we want both the husband and the wife to be godly and believing? And then the second thing that God wants to address in this nation prior to the arrival of Isaac is an aspect of God's nature, which is heretofore in the text, not been present, not been demonstrated. Up until this moment, God has shown himself to be a merciful, loving, providing, caring God, a God who takes Abraham out of the world and brings him into a new place. What about a God of justice? What about a God of wrath? What about a God who will judge the sin of men? That's a whole side to God's character that he has yet to show Abraham. That is an essential half of the personality and the character of God that must be understood if the nation of Israel is to develop properly and follow God with a fear that is respectful and required. So those are two issues that God is going to address in chapter 18. The issue of Sarah and the issue of God's wrath for sin. So that as Isaac himself becomes the son, the promised seed, there is a family ready to care for him who understands. Look with me in chapter 18, verse 1, as we begin this two-part story. 
Now, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Well, Abraham, we're told, is still living in tents, still living as a nomad. This is in a place just south of Jerusalem today, near Hebron, the southern wilderness area uh, below Jerusalem. The time here is the heat of the day, and that means it's probably early afternoon. It's also then the traditional time for a midday meal in this culture in this day. In fact, still today, the main meal of the day would have been eaten at about this point. So Abraham's resting in the tent doorway out of the sun, And that means he's likely waiting for his midday meal to be prepared. Now, in verse one, Moses tells us that the Lord visited Abraham. You notice that in verse one, the Lord visited Abraham. And then immediately in the next verse, we hear of three, quote, men visiting Abraham. The point of verse one was to inform us as readers that what was truly going to happen next was a visitation from God. But in verse 2, Moses shifts from a perspective as the narrator to telling the story from the eyes of Abraham. So though we know as the reader what's really going on, we now find ourselves in the position of Abraham watching it occur as it develops. So we can understand the events from his perspective. So in verse 2, it just says three men approached Abraham. I like to imagine this scene myself in a certain way, and not because I can prove to you it happened this way, but just because I like it, I guess. But I like to imagine him sitting on the ground, Abraham sitting on the ground, in the shadows of his tent, out of the sun. And then almost like a Western movie, he looks up and in the dusty, hazy distance with the heat rising up off the ground, he sees three figures silhouetted by the sun, maybe behind them, so he can't really make out who they are. He just sees them walking toward him. And you hear the, that, that's, that's the part I hear. I don't know if that's what you... And, and he kind of squints to see who it is. But he recognizes these are visitors, men who are traveling perhaps, And in this culture, in this day, what Abraham does here is consistent to some degree with what you would have expected from anyone. It's a reflection, I think, of the importance of hospitality in the culture that Abraham lived in. It's still that way for the most part today. In the culture of the East, hosting a visitor was of the highest honor. And you took it very seriously. And so at the first opportunity, Abraham runs to meet these men. And the running is a reflection of just how important it is to him that he gain their interest, their desire to stay with him for a time, that he could host them. It does not necessarily reflect his recognition of who they are. Not at this stage, not at this moment. He would have done this, in other words, for anyone. He runs to meet them, but notice what he does when he gets there. His first response as he approaches is to bow to the ground. The word here for bow in Hebrew is literally worship. It's the same word they use for worship. He worships at their feet. That tells me, and and different commentators have come to different opinions on this, but 
it tells me that as he approached and saw them more clearly, remember, this is a man who has seen God in various forms appear to him now a total of five times prior to this moment. This is the sixth time now. And it must be the case that as he comes close enough to see them, something about their appearance told him these are not just three ordinary travelers. And that's reflected in the way he acts, bowing down, and also in his greeting. Verse 3, he says, my lords, literally in Hebrew, it's a plural. Some of your Bibles and mine as well don't reflect that very well, unfortunately. But in verse 3, it's a plural word when he says, my lords, the plural form of the word Adonai. He recognizes these three visitors are all spiritual beings, not to be confused with ordinary men. And that's why he addresses them with the plural Adonai. But he knows one of them is the Lord because he begins to talk in the singular soon thereafter in that very same verse. When he says, I have found favor in your sight, that becomes a singular pronoun in the Hebrew. So he moves to the singular of somebody in that group. He knows one of them is the one to pay attention to, the leader. And he asks to find favor that they would not pass by him. The word for favor here is chen. And if you have a good memory, you might know or remember back to chapter 6 of Genesis when we opened the story of Noah. And one of the early things we're told is he is a man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Chen. Same phrase here. Very similar opening phrase. That should clue us in. And in fact, it'll be something we pay attention to throughout the next series of chapters. This should clue us in that there is an intentional effort on Moses' part to draw a parallel for us between the story of Noah And this story, this one that we're about to embark on, that covers the next two chapters, there are, in fact, many parallels. The first of which we see here, that both this moment when God meets Abraham and the one in which we're introduced to Noah, both moments tell us that these are men who found favor in God's sight. And the reason for the parallel between this story and the earlier one is that both are going to become pictures or examples for us of the coming destruction of the world and the return of our Lord. You remember when we studied chapter 6 through chapter 9 of Genesis, we learned how the story of the flood itself is a picture of the beginnings of judgment and how God will carry it out finally in the full judgment of the earth in a day to come. Well, this story that we're about to embark on has similar parallels. We'll come back to this later as we study more of the story, but I want you to be aware of it so you can start to look for those parallels with me. But back to this story. Abraham here offers this traveling party, a number of things, four things. He offers water, washing their feet, resting under a tree, and eating bread, having a meal. Now, all of that is in keeping with the customs of the day. There is really nothing he's doing here that you wouldn't do naturally for any visitor. But the actual way he does it, the effort to which he goes in doing it, goes well beyond anything you would have expected from someone like Abraham in his day. Look at some of the details of what he does. This entire scene depicts Abraham, if you notice, moving quickly. Seems like everything he does, he does as if he's running out of time, doesn't he? He runs. He he makes things happen fast. All of that is an indication of his desire here to please his visitors. And all of that is, I think, a reflection of who he knows he's serving in this moment. He recognizes the, the special nature of these visitors. He starts telling his wife, Sarah, use three measures of flour to make the bread cakes. Now, you might have asked yourself, you should have asked yourself, what is he telling his wife how to make bread for? You'd think she has that down already, right? He's not giving Sarah these points of direction because he feels like she needs some help. 
What he's doing is talking to the amount, the quantity. This is a tremendous amount of flour, a tremendous amount of food being prepared here, far more than three people would need. This is like a loaf of bread per man that's being prepared. His point is to emphasize, go overboard with the quantity. Next, you hear, he runs to the herd and he selects a calf to kill for the meat. Now, the first thing we notice is he did not assign that task. This is a man with servants. And he himself went and did the drudgery work of finding the calf, of picking out the animal, so that he made sure it was the choicest animal. He left it to no one else but himself. Then he instructs the servant on how to prepare it. Once again, these are people who prepare calves for meals all the time. He leaves nothing to chance. He takes no chance that it would be done less than perfectly. But all the while, he does it with haste. And then lastly, he gives them fresh dairy with the calf meat and the bread. And then look what he does once they're eating. He stands next to them like a waiter would, ready to serve them at any moment should they need anything while they're eating. He acts as if he were a slave. He takes the position of a slave in his own home to support these people. I saw this very same practice when I was in India earlier this year. In the small town where I was visiting to teach at the local seminary, they had a small church in the town and they had a pastor in that church. And he was, I guess you'd say, the pastor of the town for the most part because it was a very small town. And early in the visit, he made a point to invite me to come to his house for one night during that week to be his guest at a meal at his home. The family I was staying with made it clear to me that this is a very important thing, that this pastor would want me to come into his home and want to host me in this way was, was a great honor for him that he would be able to host me in his home. My son was with me, if you remember, Daniel and I. So we went down there that evening to his home, and he had his wife and a couple of kids, a daughter, a son, and himself. And it was as if I was the king of England. It was like a little army. The kids were doing things, the wife was doing things, the husband was doing things, but they were all coordinated in bringing food to the table and taking things away from the table. None of them ever sat at the table and actually ate with us. And I kept waiting for that moment. You know, you, you're figuring they're, they're getting the table ready. They're bringing the food out. You've sat down. You're waiting for them to join you so we can all eat together. Oh, no, 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 we don't eat. No, 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 we're here to serve you. And it was absolutely the cultural expectation that they would not sit down. They wouldn't eat a bite. It was for them to serve us. That was their honor to have us in their home. It was different. You know, it didn't feel natural for us. They watched us. You know, you're just sitting there with four people just sort of watching you eat. <laughs> different. But from their point of view, that's how they honored their guests. Once it was explained to me, it all made sense to have the whole home organized around our needs for at least the hour that we sat in that home. That's what Abraham is doing for these men. His extreme hospitality is the natural result of knowing who he was serving. He gave the Lord his best, which is only to be expected. God visited Abraham on that day, as he had done in the past, but Abraham understood how special and how honoring it was for him to have the Lord grant him this audience, now for the sixth time, but in probably the first occasion in which the Lord appeared in such a fashion that Abraham could do what he is now doing, in a form of a person. Not to say that the Lord was actually flesh here. This is pre-incarnate. He's not been born of a woman yet. He is taking the appearance of flesh. We would call it a theophany, something that fools our eyes, but it's not actually what we see. Sort of in the way the Lord appeared as a burning bush or as he 
appeared in the Spirit as a dove descending on Christ at His baptism. Those were just appearances for our sake, not the actual reality of that form. But nevertheless, Abraham recognized this is a special moment. I have the Lord appearing to me, walking to my home, and He's willing to sit in my presence. I'm going to treat Him in the highest honor I can. When Abraham does this, by the way, he, he models for us two biblical principles that are still true and still an expectation for Christians today. And we would do well to learn the model and remember them ourselves. The first thing he models for us is hospitality and a love for strangers, just as a general principle, regardless of who they are. The writer of Hebrews makes a passing reference to this same principle in the opening of his 13th chapter, Hebrews 13.1. He says, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Verse 1 of that short passage, the, the writer of the Hebrews says, the love of the church must continue. And the Greek word there is actually endure. It must endure. The love of the church must be a, an enduring part of who we are and what we do. The word for hospitality there in Greek is more nuanced than in English. It literally means to receive a surprise guest. You know, the worst kind. The better way to say it would be to be caught off guard by the imposition of a guest and yet to respond with grace and gladness. So in such a moment, when you're surprised by an imposition of an unexpected guest, the writer says we would do well to remember what Abraham experienced. He's the one the writer is referring to when he says, by showing hospitality, some have entertained angels and not known it. He's actually talking about what we're studying here. When Abraham first got up and ran to those three silhouetted figures that he saw approaching from a distance, he didn't know who they were, but it didn't stop his interest in running to them to welcome them. Turned out it was a smart move because he shows up and finds out, oh, you're the Lord. Good thing I was looking forward to this. Good thing I, I responded with hospitality. Likewise, as God's people, we are supposed to reflect the love of Christ that's in us in a way that shows grace to the person who calls upon us for hospitality, especially when they do it when we don't expect it. Look at all that Abraham communicates here by his actions. He drops everything he might have been doing. He does everything to make them comfortable, made sacrifices of himself. It wasn't cheap to make this meal. It cost him real money. He serves the guests as if he were the servant. He communicates love through that sacrifice and service. In a sense, you could argue, this is the gospel in action. The love of Christ working in us to demonstrate that love to others. People have often said, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. That is a part of our calling as Christians. And I would tell you, you, you probably have seen this yourself, but in today's culture, the practice of entertaining guests, of opening the homes for others, is, I think, a dying custom, unfortunately. At least it is in my world. And I think as Christians, it only makes our opportunity to influence the world all the greater. By contrast, if the rest of the world has begun to shrink back into their homes at night and close their doors and shutter their windows and watch TV and do the Internet and never venture out into even their neighbor's yard and have a conversation, how much more impact then will Christians have when we do those things, when we're the exception to what's norm? It isn't to say we're supposed to make a pest of ourselves, but the point is to know that hospitality is one method God can use to reach people for the gospel. So let's take advantage of it. The second biblical principle Abraham demonstrates for us here is how we serve the Lord specifically, how we approach service to God. When the Lord here came for his visit, Abraham didn't have a whole lot to offer him. He wasn't king of a, of a nation. He couldn't have a parade take place in front of the Lord. He couldn't give the Lord the keys to the city. He had a tent 
He had some servants. He had a wife who could help prepare things, and he had some animals. That's all he had. Refreshment, rest, shade, personal service. But what he did do with what he had was he gave generous portions. He gave them the best place to sit under the shade of the only tree that's mentioned in this area, the tree of Mamre. He slaughtered the best of his herd, and then he personally waited on them. He did everything he could do with what he had to his utmost for the Lord. Not even his own servants were good enough. In short, he gave the Lord his best. Paul taught that that's what we are to do as well. As Christians, we approach all that we do with an attitude that we're actually serving the Lord. Whatever the walk of life, it doesn't really matter. What each of us is doing is serving the Lord. If we think like that, we're likely to serve Him better. But even when you don't think you're serving the Lord, you actually are. So the question is, how good is the service when you don't put it in that perspective? When you don't think of it as actually serving the Lord, what's the likelihood your service will slip off the scale a little bit and become poor. In my experience, it's pretty good, which is the problem. Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. When you're doing something you hate for someone you don't like, remember, you're not working for him or her, you're working for the Lord. And the will of God is at work in how you respond to your situation. Abraham here had the benefit we don't always get. He had the benefit of actually seeing the Lord sitting in front of him at his tent, being fed the food he was serving. So it was very obvious to him who he was serving. He knew in that, in that moment he was serving the Lord. He did it gladly. He engaged his whole household. He made sure everyone was focused on the work of serving the Lord. He held nothing back. We don't have to have the Lord seated at the doorway to our home in order to know those same principles are our principles. We are to hold nothing back. Nothing is too valuable to sacrifice for God. We are to engage our entire household in that service. It's not just about one person. We are to make sure that we are all focused on it as service for the Lord, making sure everyone understands that. And then we are to make sure we do it joyfully and gladfully for the Lord. You probably remember verses in the Scripture where he says, give your tithes gladly or don't give them at all. That same principle applies here in service. So what did Abraham here expect to receive? from what he was doing. What was his expectation for a reward? It seems nothing but the pleasure of the Lord. He says, just stay with me, give me that honor, and then you can go on your way, and I'll have had what I needed. Notice what Paul says in the verses I read out of Ephesians. He says, don't be men-pleasers giving eye service. What a wonderful phrase, eye service. It means doing something merely to gain a reputation before men. Merely for the praises of men. It implies that when men stop watching, we'll stop doing. Because our doing was only about the men watching. It's a form of hypocrisy. Paul says, don't do it that way. Do all your work knowing the Lord is always watching. And always knows how your work is going. Do your best for Him. That's what Abraham teaches us. So he serves the Lord. He serves the Lord plus two angels, as we come to find out. And then as they're seated in the tent doorway, finishing the meal, a conversation ensues, which brings us to the main point for this morning. Verse 9. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? 
And he said, there, in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. This is such an interesting scene, right? There's so much going on here. After the meal, this group is sitting around and they ask something. They ask, where's your wife? But look what they do. They name her. Where's Sarah? They said to him, it's plural, as reflected in our English. That indicates they all asked the question. How? I don't know exactly, but they all asked it. It might have been said in unison. It might have been said each of them different ways, but they all got the question out. And though there's no indication Abraham ever gave the name earlier in the text, they knew it. So knowing her name here and saying it, and all three of them saying it, the Lord now has communicated to Abraham clearly a couple of things. First, his supernatural identity. There's no doubt anymore. If there was ever a doubt that these people were not really people, it's clear now. They've known something they couldn't have known. In that culture, the woman would not have emerged from the tent, would not have seated herself in the presence of these three men. She would have been in the background the whole time, never introduced. That would have been the culture. So they would not have had a chance to know her name in a natural way. By the way, Jesus does something very similar in the Gospels when he was revealing his identity to his disciples. In John's Gospel, remember in John's first chapter, verse 45, we're told, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus goes on to say, did that impress you? Well, you're going to see a lot better than that. But the point of it was, in revealing that secret knowledge, something that human beings could not have known naturally, he demonstrates his divinity, and Nathanael accepted that. Likewise here, Abraham and Sarah have just received evidence to confirm their suspicions concerning the identity of these visitors. So that's the first thing they did, was confirm their identity. But the second thing they did was they put the emphasis on Sarah. You know, there would have been no expectation in that culture for the woman to become a center of any conversation. Her name just got dropped by all three of them so that she is now in the center of their conversation. Abraham answers the question, well, she's back here in the tent. But we know this is the Lord. We know it's the Lord and His angels. He knows where she is. It's back to that age-old question, why does God ask questions when He already knows the answer? The answer here is the same as in the past. So that a point is being made to him through that question. And the point that's being made here is, we want to talk about your wife. The Lord repeats the news that Sarah would be giving birth in a year, which is news that has been given before. The most recent encounter, one chapter earlier, 
God had already told Abraham in that encounter that there would be a child in the same season next year. Now he actually says it will be one year. So that tells us the encounter in chapter 17 and this encounter here, they probably happened very close together, within weeks of each other. But now he's saying it's one year exactly from now. And as he says that, Sarah's listening. Now that's not uncommon either. The women being excluded from many of the cultural moments of that day, they're interested, and so they would hang out nearby and listen, and that was the way the culture worked. Now, it's hard to know, though, from what we've seen in the text up to this point, going back in earlier chapters, it's hard to know what Sarah knew about Abraham's conversations with God. We really don't have anything to tell us what she's heard up to this point. It's possible she's heard virtually nothing. I mean, we know that she's seen some things taking place. She knows that they had to leave Ur, and Abraham probably shared some reasons for why that had to happen. She knows that her name has been changed, and his name has been changed, and she was there for the whole circumcision bit, I'm sure. So she's seen some things. She's probably been given some answers to some questions. She has some knowledge. But I wonder if Abraham has hidden from her the fact that it would be her to have the child and not Hagar. You could imagine in that family right now, things are a little tense with Hagar and Ishmael and all the rest. And maybe he's thinking to himself, I don't really want to bring this up if I don't have to. You know, let's just wait and see what happens. It's possible she's never heard this, this specific aspect of God's promise. And as she hears it through the tent, maybe for the first time, she laughs. The reason for the laughter is verse 11. It says that they were both old, but it also says she was past childbearing. But in Hebrew, it's a very interesting phrase. It literally is, Sarah had ceased in the way of a woman. That's the literal in Hebrew. And what we're saying is that she has reached menopause. She's not physically capable of having children anymore, at least in the way human perception would understand it. She's past childbearing years. So she says silently, it says in her heart, she laughs. She goes, come on, you're crazy. But she reacts in a way that's very similar to Abraham, doesn't she? Abraham, we heard in the chapter before, when he finds out it's going to be Sarah, he falls on the ground laughing. In verse 12, she says, I'm old, and shall I now have this delight or this pleasure that I should have a child after I've wanted one for so long? So if I take what she's saying, and I take what Abraham's saying, and I try to make sense of what's different about them, Sarah's thoughts would go something like this. I've always wanted a child. We've been hoping for one our whole marriage. If God had wanted to give us a child, he certainly would have done so by now. Now that I'm past childbearing years, am I expected to believe that now would be the time that this would take place? It's laughable. In other words, her laughter here is an indication that she does not believe God's promises. And we have confirmation that she has not believed because of what the Lord says in response. The Lord's response here is fundamentally different than the response he gave to Abraham in the prior chapter, is it not? When we looked last week, we said his laugh was not a laugh of disbelief. It was a laugh of incredulity. He could not believe that what God was now about to do was going to happen, but he accepted it, which is why it made him laugh. It seemed too good to be true, but he accepted it. And the response from God back in chapter 17 was not to rebuke, not to call into question why he laughed, but to just confirm it again. But with Sarah, the laugh comes from a different heart. This is a heart that does not accept that it can happen, that denies the possibility and says it is not possible because my body can't produce kids anymore. 
And that leads God to say, is anything impossible with God? You're going to limit God's power by virtue of what your body is capable of doing? That's a limitation to God? Really? Totally different heart. How can it be then that Sarah has not believed the promises of God up to this point? Because we know all that's happened. She followed Abraham from Ur. She agreed to live as a nomad when that had not been their lifestyle prior to that. She's gone into Egypt, left Egypt. She's heard secondhand about the promises. She's seen the circumcision, so on and so forth. Why would she not yet have believed all that God has presented to Abraham and to her family? The short answer is, the faith of one person is not a substitute for the faith of another. The faith of the husband does not save the wife. The faith of one is not a substitute for the faith of the other. She's being blessed by God because she's in the covenant that God made with Abraham through her association with Abraham. And that's a part of the covenant, by the way. Remember, he says, I will bless those who bless you when he spoke to Abraham. So how did that work for Sarah? Well, she's being an obedient, supportive wife, which is a blessing to her husband. And by that relationship, she is in the covenant given to Abraham in terms of the blessing. But remember, being a receiver of the blessings of that covenant is not the same thing as being a believer in the promises. And that's what saves you. Notice in verse 12, she addresses Abraham as Lord. That's a term of respect, but it also implies obedience to authority. Sarah respected her husband so much that she followed his authority through all the craziness that has divined their life for the last 24 years. And she has done that even though she lacked faith herself in the God that called her husband. And that gives us the full understanding of a statement Peter makes in his first letter concerning the value of submission in a marriage. Peter says this, 1 Peter 3, 5. He says, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Sarah's willingness to call her husband Lord led her into a relationship with the Lord. For had she not been obedient, had she not been trusting and following her husband, even as Abraham was following the Lord, then she would never have been in the situation where he could work in that family and eventually bring her to faith. She would never have had the opportunity to encounter the living God on this day outside the tent. And as the Lord revealed her thoughts back to her in verse 12, he asked her, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Similar to what he says in Matthew's gospel when he says, with God, all things are possible. The point of what he's saying to her in this moment is to focus her attention off of the natural, the body that's dead, and on to God and the supernatural, the one who can do all things, and by his power, the truth of his word. And he calls her to believe. Now, you don't see in the pages of chapter 18 what we classically think of as a salvation moment. You don't see the believe and be saved moment. You don't see an altar call. You don't see water and baptism. You don't see any of the things we typically associate with that kind of a moment. And you certainly don't see Sarah at any point in this narrative saying, I believe. But we don't have to have that in order to understand what happened in this moment. The Lord comes to Sarah and says, this time next year, I will visit you. Now, what he means by that is sort of a double meaning. 
One, it means you'll have the child of the promise. That's the visitation of God in the sense that it's the manifestation of his promise. But it has a second meaning. We know Isaac will be that son. And Isaac is a picture of Christ, is he not? In the way the New Testament uses him. And in the sense that she will give birth to Isaac, in a way you could say she's giving birth to Christ in the picture form only. He's saying, I will be with you in that sense this time next year. Not literally, but as a picture. And in response to his knowledge of her heart and him calling her out in the moment for what she was thinking and for her lack of faith, her response is fear of the Lord and a denial that she ever laughed. The Lord persists. He says, no, 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 no. You did laugh. We both know it. This is a call of repentance. This is how the Lord works. When the Lord steps into the life of an unbeliever and shows them their sin and causes them to recognize that in themselves and to say to themselves, is that really who I am? Is that really what I did? And the Lord says, yes, that is you. That's the step of repentance. That's the step of conviction that leads to repentance. And we know this had its desired effect in our heart because of what the writer of Hebrews tells us later in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, 11, we're told by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. People have often had a difficult time reconciling that verse with this scene because her behavior doesn't seem to match what the writer of Hebrews just described. Well, the problem is we've put those two together in time instead of spacing them apart just a little. At this moment, she's being called to repent, called to understand the promise, called to believe in it herself. And what the writer of Hebrews tells us is, she did. And because of her faith, what does the writer tell us? It says, by faith, she received the ability to conceive. How long does it take for a baby to be born? Nine months. How long is this event taking place in chapter 18 before the birth? One year. So between this moment and three months from this moment, she comes to faith. And by her faith, she received the ability to conceive. This is God working in the family of Abraham to ensure that this family is not just one man of faith, but a couple of faith who will raise a son to begin a nation. Next week, when we come back, we'll study the second half of the story when God now presents to this family of God his full nature, his full character, to include the wrath of God against sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and Father, I pray that what the Scriptures have shown us this morning would give us an opportunity to reflect in our own families, those we know who are dear to us, who may not know the Lord, and ask ourselves, are we serving the Lord in a way that was useful to Him in presenting the Gospel? Do they see the love of Christ reflected in us? Do they see us giving our service in this world as to God, as to the Lord? Do they see the love of Christ in our willingness to be hospitable and gracious? And are they near enough to us so that as the promises of God are playing out in our life, we can speak to what those promises mean and perhaps be the one to deliver the truth? I pray, Father, we would all seek more opportunity to do that in our families where the opportunity is greatest. And may the Lord use it. And let us as a church, Father, grow as a family as well encouraging one another in the day that is the, the days we have. And let us be useful to you, serving you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.